Deroan Saranai. Welcome to our Bark Full Full Moon Foyer Upasata Dhamma session. Heartfelt good wishes to all of you. As you already know, that it's very important to come together on the Upasata to listen to the Buddha's words and encourage each other in development and making spiritual progress. Today we'll be examining the Dhakasanthana Sutta. So this is from the Middle Length Discourses. And this is a sutta that most of you are familiar with. It is the Buddha's instructions on how to overcome obstacles when we pursue the higher concentration of mind. So objective in studying this sutta today is learning how to tame our mind, actively work with the signs that, that come up in our meditation and also enable us to overcome any challenges or blocks that arise from unwholesome thoughts in particular or states of mind, see where they might be preventing us from accessing higher concentrations so the jhanas or absorptions, and also figure out what makes us wobble you know, when we find ourselves in some ways kicked out of higher concentrated states, particularly in the initial stages of absorption. So the Takasantana Sutta, it offers very precise medicine from the Buddha. So as the perfectly enlightened one, the Buddha, he's known and seen how the mind works. He knows how thoughts are constructed and formed. And of course, he knows the appropriate remedies, the medicine, when it comes to if we struggle in our meditation out of wrong view or unwholesome states and how to navigate and then tame the mind. When meditators talk about struggling to concentrate the mind, specifically development of mind in accordance with Noble Eightfold Path, this is usually associated with uh, unwholesome thoughts and this falls under wrong intention or wrong thought, Micha Sankapa, rather than the right intention or right thought, so Samma Sankapa. So when we look at what blocks concentration, this is the area that we need to consistently look at, particularly if we want to realize the jhanas and, and not to hinder the path. So what we'll see in our session today is how we need to take a proactive approach in the way we develop the mind and in activating and developing the noble for path. So what we'll cover today is we'll go through our tips and reminders. We'll Look at right intention, so Sama Sankapa and the development of the Noble Eightfold Path. We'll introduce the Vitaka Santana Sutta, and then we'll look at a few things before we launch into the specific signs that the Buddha talks about. So we'll look at uh, pursuing the higher mind, the Buddha's reference to that. We'll look at unwholesome thoughts and the, the part that that plays, because I think it's good to acknowledge the different kinds of gross to middle to subtle uh, unwholesome thoughts. And then we'll look at the Buddha's reference to the mastery of the ways of thought. So deep dive after that into each of the, the signs when we pursue the higher mind. And along the way, we'll do some contemplation, either formally or, or just as we go along. And we'll end with questions and answers. So as always, we start with this just to clarify our intention today, which is to keep an open mind when we listen to the Buddha's words and, and different explanations of things. 
And it's okay not to understand everything. It's sometimes not appropriate at this particular point in time, or there's something that strongly resonates. But if there's something that doesn't resonate, then leave it aside for the moment. Now, remember that we're all learners, we're all seekers here. So we are attempting to encourage each other on this, of course, that to direct the mind to the Buddha's words and understand them, penetrate them, see where they're useful in our daily practice, our spiritual growth. So we can apply ourselves to the meditation or to any contemplations we do together. And of course, always use our own example. So in this session, I'll be bringing up different examples so that we can connect with the Dhamma. And of course, we have good wishes for everyone who is joining today and everyone that has helped us to, to come to this path and to uh, walk this path together. And even simply who has helped us to wake up today and, and join this session. So we'll begin with looking at right intention or thought. So this is a good thing to look at before we launch into Vitaka Santana Sutta because it's good to remind ourselves of the words. So this is taken from Mahachatarasika Chattarisaka Sutta. It's in the Middle End Discourses, number 117. And the Buddha says, there in Bhikkhus, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? One understands wrong intention as wrong intention and right intention as right intention. This is one's right view. Then he explains, and what because is wrong intention? The intention of sensual desires, this is karma sankapo, the intention of ill will, biapada sankapo, and the intention of cruelty, bihinsa sankapo, this is the wrong intention. So here, if we cultivate thoughts of sensuality, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty or harm, then this is the wrong thought or intention. And then the Buddha goes on to say, and what because is right intention? Right intention, I say, is twofold. There is right intention that is affected by taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. And there is the second, which is right intention that is noble, taintless, supramundane, a factor of the path. And then he says, and what because is right intention that is affected by taints, partaking of merit, ripening in acquisitions. The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill Ill will, the intention of non-cruelty, this is right intention that is affected by things, and so on. So when we look at this, if you could say mundane right intention, it's still affected by taints. It's still connected with merit-making. It's still ripening in acquisitions or worldly possessions, family, wealth, and so forth. And so that's the first kind of mundane right intention. The second is, right intention that is noble, taintless, supramundane, a factor of the path. And the Buddha explains the thinking, thought, intention, mental absorption, mental fixity, directing of mind, verbal formation in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is taintless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is right intention that is noble, taintless, supramundane, a factor of the path. So with this supramundane right intention, thought, this is what we develop as the way out of suffering. This is part of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's a path factor. So when we follow the Buddha's instructions to fully develop the Noble Eightfold Path, we take this higher training that ultimately leads to the destruction of all taints and leads to Nibbana. So when we looked at, in our previous Poya session, we talked about beneficial talk. We also looked at this last statement, which is one makes 
an effort to abandon wrong intention and to enter upon right intention, this is one's right effort. Mindfully, one abandons wrong intention. Mindfully, one enters upon and abides in right intention. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three states run and circle around right intention, that is, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. So what the Buddha is confirming here, as we saw when we looked at talking last time, this time we're looking at the mind, we see that the path factors are again working together. Right view is first, it leads. And knowing the right view, which is we need to abandon the wrong intention to enter into the right intention, so abandon wrong thoughts of sensuality, ill will, cruelty and harmlessness, uh, or harmlessness, then we apply the active right effort. So we, we apply active energy to do this. And the active right mindfulness completes the process. So these three path factors, if you think of it this way, they work hand in hand to activate the Noble Eightfold Path. So why is this important? It's so we understand the foundation, the building blocks that Buddha is laying for us so that we can apply the Vipaka Santana Sutta, which is all about unwholesome thoughts or uh, distracted thoughts that are rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. They're the, the ones that come and disturb our meditation. They come from this wrong intention, wrong thought, and therefore they're led by the wrong view. And so when you look at the medicine for Vipaka Santana Sutta, you need to know this first. So we see this diagram again, we've used it before many times, and we look at how we activate the Noble Eightfold Path. We, we know that there is the development of the body, we know that there is development of virtue, and we know that there's development of mind, and of course, development of wisdom. So in our previous Poya session, we looked at the development of virtue, Bhavati Sila, when we were looking at beneficial talk, how we activated right speech and right effort. In this session today, we're looking at Bhavata Titta, development of mind. And so we're looking at Sama Sankapa and Sama Samadhi. So when we look at this, what's important is to talk a little bit about the higher trainings, the Sikha, training of higher concentration of mind or higher thought. And that's where we want to apply the Vitaka Santana Sutta, because this is the Buddha's advice when we encounter difficulties getting to the higher concentrations. So at each turn, what we'll see is that the medicine gets stronger. And what we'll also see is that all the higher trainings will become very relevant and necessary. They're linked to each other. And we'll come back to that. So let, let's now start looking at the Vitaka Santana Sutta. So the architecture for this sutta is broken into three main parts. The first part is the Buddha advising the monks with an introduction about that the, there are five signs. And then he goes on to say that if you give attention to these five signs when you're pursuing the higher mind, then it's very helpful, very beneficial. Second part is the detailed explanation of each of the signs. And he gives a simile under each one and what we should be giving attention to, and then the medicine. And then the last part, the Buddha declares that one whose mind steadies and concentrates as a result of attending to these signs is called the master of course and ways of thought. So we're going to look at some of these terms before we launch in because they're quite helpful. But the word that Buddha uses for signs is nimitta, 
And nimitta can be a sign, it can be mark, it can be a characteristic or even an attribute. But essentially, it's something that we're looking out for that is directing us to, to stay alert and to look into this. So we spoke a little bit earlier about the three kinds of higher training. So the Buddha references, uh, particularly at the start of the Sutta, he says, thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetha's Grove, Anathapindaka's Park. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus. And they, they replied, Venerable Sir. And the Blessed One says, bhikkhus, when a bhikkhu is pursuing the higher mind, from time to time he should give attention to five signs. So when we look at pursuing the higher mind, adhichitta, anyayutana, this is really looking at adhichitta, the higher thought, the higher mind, the higher concentration of mind, the higher contemplation. And anuyutta usually means you apply yourself, you're practicing, you, you're intent upon it, uh, or you're attending to it. That's where we get pursuing the, the higher mind. You're in pursuit of it, you're practicing for it, you're intent on it. So what we know about adhichitta is that it's one of the three higher trainings. So we know that the three higher trainings are higher virtue, adhisilasika, higher thought or concentration of mind, adhichitta-sikha, and then higher wisdom, adhipanya-sikha. So when we look at this, another way of saying, of course, is sila-samadhipanya, but the Buddha says that one abandons lust, hatred, and delusion when you train in these things. And when these are abandoned, one does nothing unwholesome and does not resort to anything bad. That's in the Vajiputta Sutta. And we learn a little bit more in the Anguttanikaya about these three trainings. And we've been through this. You see this in the, in the, in the boxes here. So with training in higher virtue, uh, one is virtuous, dwells restrained, possessed of good conduct and resort, seeing danger in the slightest faults, having undertaken any training rules, he trains. And so that's the training in, in higher virtue. Then the training in higher mind, this is where one is secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. One enters and dwells in the first jhana, the second, the third, and the fourth. So that's the higher training uh, in the higher mind. And the third one is the higher wisdom. With the destruction of the taints, one realizes for himself with direct knowledge in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, dwells in it. And of course, that is associated with possessing wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, that which is noble, penetrative, and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. So you understand as it really is the Four Noble Truths. You understand the taints, origin and cessation. So the, the, whole, the whole teaching is really understood when you perfect that. But they're all linked. So despite us talking about higher mind today, of course, we need wisdom when we apply medicine from the Buddha. We also need higher virtue as the foundation for being able to access the higher mind. As you see, it's secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. So there's purification that is needed. And if we don't have that, then it becomes a struggle in our meditation. And what we end up doing is needing to do that in our meditation uh, much more. Uh, energetically, more force, strength, more resolution. So from the 
Pethagopadesa, what it says about training in the higher mind is that we need the seclusion from sensual pleasures to subdue greed. And for seclusion from unwholesome states, it's really to subdue the hate and the delusion. And so if we can do that, that's how we enter into the higher concentrations, the jhanas. So as we train, we all know that we encounter difficulties in our meditation. And even despite being easy to instruct, so despite us being sulvita and we are following the Buddha's instructions, still we can encounter difficulties in our meditation at times. And so this is where the Vitaka Santana Sutta becomes very useful, very beneficial to us. So part of working with the higher mind is that we need to know how to eliminate different kinds of corruptions. So the gross kind, the middling kind, and the subtle kind. Now we've touched on Pamsu Dovaka Sutta, and this is the simile of the goldsmith. And the, the Buddha is very good at enunciating uh, how we clean for or remove defilements. And in, in this sutta, the Buddha says, because there are gross defilements of gold, soil, grit, and gravel, now the soil remover or his apprentice first pours the gold into a trough and washes, rinses, and cleans it. When that has been removed and eliminated, there still remain medium-sized defilements in the gold, fine grit, and coarse sand. The soil remover or his apprentice washes, rinses, and cleans it again. When that has been removed and eliminated, there still remain subtle defilements in the gold, fine sand and black dust. So the soil remover or his apprentice washes, rinses and cleans it again. When that has been removed and eliminated, only grains of gold remain. The goldsmith or his apprentice now pours the gold into a melting pot and fans it, melts it and smelts it. But even when this has been done, the gold is not yet settled and the dross has not yet been entirely removed. The gold is not yet malleable, wieldy and luminous, but still brittle and not properly fit for work. But as the goldsmith or his apprentice continues to fan, melt and smelt the gold, a time comes when this gold is settled and the dross has been entirely removed. The gold becomes malleable, wieldy and luminous pliant and properly fit for work. Then whatever kind of ornament the goldsmith wishes to make from it, whether a bracelet, earrings, a necklace, or a golden garland, he can achieve his purpose. So the Buddha goes on to explain that when we're devoted to the higher mind, then there are gross defilements, similar to what the uh, goldsmith is doing when when he's actually eliminating. So the gross defilements that the Buddha talks about in this Pamsodovaka Sutta is bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct. So that is the, the uh, gross defilements. And he says that one must abandon, dispel, terminate, and obliterate them. So we've heard those words before. They're very forceful. And so when that's been done, you look at the middling defilements. So these middling defilements are sensual thoughts, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of harm, cruelty. And so again, the Buddha says, you abandon, dispel, terminate, and obliterate them. So those are the middling ones. Now, when we come to the subtle defilements, the Buddha goes on to say that these are thoughts about one's relatives, thoughts about one's country, and thoughts about one's reputation. 
or something along the lines of not being looked down upon, not being disrespected. So again, one abandons, dispels, terminates and obliterates them. So why this sutta is important for us to look at before we launch into the signs in the Vitaka Santana Sutta is because we need to acknowledge the different kinds of defilements that come to the mind and need to be removed and eliminated before we pursue the higher mind. So these are the things that come to disturb our meditation. So gross defilements again, misconduct by body, speech and mind, middling defilements are the thoughts of sensuality, ill will and harm or cruelty. And then the subtle defilements are the thoughts about relatives, country and reputation. So if we're honest, we all fall short with these different kinds of defilements. And some of them we're not even aware of, like that we mentally sit down, that it's due to these very subtle defilements. So we may not even know that some of these thoughts are unwholesome or defiled. So if we think closely about how our minds gravitate to concerns over family, uh, country and reputation, we can see that they are actually blocking our spiritual practice at different levels. And that's not just even when we're pursuing the higher mind in meditation, so even in daily life. So you take this nyati vitako, the thought of one's relatives, this encompasses all the worldly matters regarding our relatives, our families, our loved ones, things such as worries or concerns about the welfare of our loved ones, whether it's their studies or livelihood, relationships, health, gains, their troubles, even basic survival needs. It can also be about family disputes, preferences, family business. So if they persist, they can be very troubling. So these are the subtle defilements that if you look in your meditation, they do come up and they take a great deal of headspace in and out of the meditation. And then if you look at thought of one's country, Janapada Vitakur, this encompasses all the worldly matters concerning one's country from politics to economy, social issues, uh, downfall, assortment of preferences and views about whatever our country is going through. I mean, this is very resonant at the moment. So out of attachment, the mind gets divided. And so you, you divide what's your preference against what's not your preference. So inside and outside relevant to your country. So we can all relate to this. So this is a subtle defilement. So many of us may have these kinds of thoughts swirling in our meditation, despite trying to follow one of the Buddha's Nyanapattas. And then the thought of one's reputation um, is really when you translate the Pali word, it comes to thoughts of not wanting to be looked down upon. So you're not wanting to be belittled, disrespected, and it may be due to one's birth, class, family, studies, what the type of work that you do, your outward appearance, intelligence, all those sorts of things. So when you look at this, we might feel that we've been treated unjustly. The thoughts might be that we feel that we've been uh, disrespected or blamed in the wrong way. And so we can become very, very disturbed in this. And sometimes they are lying dormant in our mind. And so when they do arise in our meditation, they come out of nowhere sometimes. And uh, it's very useful to, to look at this um, especially in our meditation and in, in applying the Taka Santana Sutta as well. So as the Buddha says, these are subtle defilements. And if we look into the mental noise, the mental challenges that come up, then you can see these do show up. 
So the other ones that the Buddha does talk about are subtle defilements. He talks about thoughts concerning gain, honor, and praise. He talks about thoughts of solicitude, fondness for the affairs of others. So the, the first one, the gain, honor, and praise, we've, we've done a whole session on that, so we don't need to look at that again. But the thoughts of solicitude for the affairs of others, and this is from Itivutika Eti, Vitaka Sutta. Sometimes people ask a lot of questions out of the concern for the welfare of others. So when we look at these thoughts of solicitude, fondness for the affairs of others, this is really about we're too interested or concerned about other people's business, about their welfare, their ups and downs. It's similar to the Haladikani Sutta where we're intimate in the village and the rising and falling, uh, whether we are happy or sad about what happens in the village. And so due to the intimate bonds that we have, then what happens is we uh, get overtaken by thoughts in that way, unwholesome thoughts. So with all these defilements, what's really important is to heed the Buddha's instructions, and that's really to abandon, dispel, terminate, and obliterate these kinds of unwholesome states, unwholesome thoughts. So there is no simple observing. You, know, you, you don't allow it to be there and you don't wait for it to pass and indulge those thoughts because they tend to grow. So it's not that at all. You need to uh, be very clear from the teachings that the Buddha's instructions is abandon, dispel, terminate and obliterate them. So keep this in mind when we deep dive into the five signs that we're meant to give attention to from the Vitaka Santana Sutta when we go through that because really that's where this medicine from the Buddha comes in. It's all about abandonment, all about terminating those thoughts and being able to get back onto our meditation. So the second phrase that we want to look at is really about mastery over the course and ways of thought. So this is something that the Buddha was referring to. And with this particular uh, phrase, what's really useful is that the Pali is Vasi Vitaka Pariyaya Pakisu. So it's translated as mastery over the ways of thought. It can also be mastery over the courses of thought, mastery over the patterns of thought, or mastery over the course and ways of thought. Because this is what the Buddha says at the end of the sutta. He says, with this reference to this kind of mastery, one will think whatever thought one wishes to think and will not think any thought that one doesn't wish to think. So with this, there is something that is very clear about being able to direct the mind. So the Buddha is talking mastery over our thoughts that we wish to think that help us to develop the higher concentration. And what thoughts not to think that will sabotage that? People often get it wrong or misapprehend the Buddhist teachings when they assume that developing the mind as part of the Noble Eightfold Path is simply about not thinking. But if you take that simplistic view and approach, then you may not end up develop. You may end up developing the wrong path and practice. So it's not as simplistic as uh, stopping thinking. Yes, there is the stilling of the, the mind when you get to the higher concentrations, but you don't get there through brute force and it's not simply that. It's actually how to think, kusala and akusala. So the emphasis that the Buddha always gives, if you 
you're very familiar with the Buddhist teachings is always think what is kusala as the pathway to abandon what is akusala, so unwholesome, and then you realize the higher concentrations. So when we look at the wholesome thoughts, then what happens is you're able to actually still the thoughts that happen. It naturally happens when you reach the higher concentrations. And you need these wholesome thoughts because you, we, what we're doing is we often in our meditation, what we're doing is following the Buddha's instructions, the Jnanapathas, the insight pathways. These naturally lead us to those higher concentrations and the stilling of the mind in that natural way. We directly experience them that way. So if you have that experience, you know what, what is meant by that. And so what we do when we develop the mind is that we're developing the mind to get to the higher concentrations more easily. We're training. We're training so that it's without difficult difficulty or without trouble, we access those higher concentrations because that's when wisdom really starts to kick in. You start to see what is apparent as the truth. And you start to build on that. And that's where spiritual progress comes from. So what prevents all of that is the unwholesome thoughts. They're rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. So the things like mental defilements, hindrances, they all prevent us. So this is where you see that we can wobble. This is where you can see that we get kicked out because we haven't purified enough. And there's still things coming in that, that maybe we still give some precedence to, some priority to, or we're indulging in it. We need to look at it. So the other sutta reference, which is which is on the screen now, is this Vasakara Sutta. So this is another reference to mastery over the ways of thought. And Buddha was talking to a Brahmin named Vasakara, and he wanted to know from the Buddha whether he approved or rejected his own definition of what a great man possessing great wisdom is defined as. And the Buddha didn't approve or reject his, his definition but he gave his own. And this is the, the definition that Buddha gave. He said, I describe one who possesses four qualities as a great man with great wisdom. What for? Here he is practicing for the welfare and happiness of many people. He is one who has established many people in the noble method. That is in the goodness of the Dhamma, in the wholesomeness of the Dhamma. He thinks whatever he wants to think and does not think what he does not want to think. He intends whatever he wants to intend and does not intend what he does not want to intend. Thus, he has attained to mental mastery of the ways of thought. He gains at will without trouble or difficulty the four jhanas that constitute the higher mind and are pleasant dwellings in this very life. With the destruction of the taint, he has realized for himself with direct knowledge in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he dwells in it. So this all links very well. And we can see that the Buddha in this definition, uh, it gives a little more from, from what the Vitaka Santana says in terms of mastery over ways of thought because it includes intention in there. And Buddha himself clearly it's this definition of a great man with great wisdom. And this is something that we are aspiring to, that in our spiritual practice, this is where we want to get to. So the five signs that we want to look at, give attention to, are listed on this particular slide.
And what we can see here is that they're all connected. The Buddhist medicine, if you look down the list, you see it increases in strength as, you, as we move sequentially through the signs. So we start with, we'll go with the simile. So the simile is a skilled carpenter. So you give attention to a sign that is connected with wholesome. Then you have a simile of a carcass around one's neck. So you examine the danger in those unwholesome thoughts. You have a simile of a person shutting their eyes or looking away. So we try to forget the unwholesome thoughts and not give attention to them. Now, the fourth one is a simile of a person considering their posture from gross to subtle postures. And this is giving attention to the stilling of the thought formations of those unwholesome thoughts. And then the final one is a strong man beating, constraining, and crushing a weaker man. So with effort, we beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. So it increases in strength as we move through the signs. And if one doesn't work, then you move to the next. If that doesn't work, you move to the next until you come to the fifth sign. And we'll go through in detail what is explained by the Buddha and, and the simile that the Buddha gives in more detail. So these instructions from the Buddha, they are wisdom-based. They're meant to work with our spiritual faculties, our indriya, and with the powers, the bala. So whatever insight we have gained from our spiritual practice, we also apply that when we encounter these difficulties. And what's clear is also that this is mainly intended for when we are meditating. So contemplating with the intention of entering into the higher concentration. But it is also possible to apply this same medicine in daily life outside of formal meditation. But clearly when you read this sutta, it's intended for when you want to access higher concentration. So we'll go through the Buddhist instructions and the simile, and we'll see how we can also apply it in our meditation and maybe talk a little bit about daily life as well. And while you're listening, uh, think about your own challenges in the meditation and the examples so that you can connect with this number too. Okay, so let me see. So this first sign, this is where the Buddha says, here bhikkhus, when a bhikkhu is giving attention to some sign and owing to that sign, there arise in him evil and wholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate and with delusion. Then he should give attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome. When he gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, then any evil and wholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate and with delusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steady, internally, quiet, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated, just as, a, just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out, remove and extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one. So too, when a bhikkhu gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. So what's important when we are meditating is that when we're meditating on a med meditation object, so we could be meditating on metta, the first profitable direction, we could be meditating on the noble truth of suffering, we could be doing some sutta meditation like Kirimananda Sutta or Potaliya Sutta. And the evil and wholesome thoughts connected with desire, hate, and delusion, they enter, they arise. 
So this is the Buddha's advice of that we of how we abandon those thoughts and how they come to subside. So it's important that we don't simply allow those thoughts to linger, to take hold and expand. We need to be quite proactive when we do this meditation, when we do this, this application of the Buddha's medicine, because we don't want anything to sabotage what we are doing in our meditation, to bring those obstructions and to have them linger there. So this first sign is about giving attention to a sign connected with what is wholesome. So the simile that the Buddha uses is a skilled carpenter who knocks out uh, and extracts the coarse peg by means of a fine one. So when we look at that simile, it's knocking out coarse unwholesome thoughts with the refined wholesome thought. We're using a skilled state to overcome an unskilled state. So in daily life, how can we think about this? Well, if the mind keeps gravitating to unwholesome thoughts about people, situations, we need to replace those thoughts with wholesome thoughts in regards to those people or situations. So we take an example of, say you are working and you are angry with your boss because of some decision they've made about a project that you're working on. And you think it's wrong or you suffer as a result of the decision. So your mind keeps swirling in negative thoughts about the boss. If you follow that sign, then what needs to be done is you need to think about something wholesome about your boss or about the situation. So one of the examples could be you reflect on the fact that this was the person that actually gave you the job in the first place. This is the person that gave you a promotion or pay rise in the past. Or maybe there's been a time that they've supported you on a different project where they've backed you up. And, and so there is goodness there. It's, it's not all bad. So that's one example. There's another example would be, say at the moment, a lot of people are upset about the world. And so you think one country is oppressing your country or another country or a politician is causing you to suffer. So it may be possible to think back on something good that, that is about the country or, or the politician that they've done in the past, some good deed, some extension of help where you have benefited or, or other people have benefited. There's always something wholesome to be found. So that's the in daily life kind of how you would look at it. Now, in regard to the meditation or development of mind, this is where the, the medicine is really or the advice is really intended. So it may be the case where we've selected the meditation object or the inside pathway and we're trying to follow the Buddha's instructions. We're following the jnana path, the inside pathway, but we're prevented from deepen, deepening the meditation, from accessing the jhana because something has come up. So an example might be we're contemplating the first noble truth of suffering. So we're contemplating birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering and so on. So we're contemplating this in our mind, using our own examples and everything. And at some point when we're doing this contemplation, ill will or anger arises. And maybe it's a specific person that keeps coming to the mind or a scenario at work or at home. So when this is the case, if you look at replacing the coarse peg with a fine one, we need to switch our meditation. So because it's anger that is arising or ill will, it's appropriate to then cultivate metta. And that's, that's how you would apply this, this medicine. Or another example could be that you're cultivating mindfulness of breathing and 
lustful thoughts arise. So anapanasati and then karma vitaka arises. So when this comes up, then it could be about a particular person or an object of desire. So again, it's useful to switch meditations because at that point, there's no point following on with the anapanasati because this person is still, is still troubling in terms of the sensuality or, or the object of desire. And when that's the case, you need to switch it to something that corrects the perversion in the mind because you can see that there is wrong view entering the meditation. So what you want to see instead of seeing something attractive, so which is something that you think is suba, you want to see asuba. So attractive in the unattractive is what you're seeing. You want to replace that. So you, you can swap to something like an asuba meditation. It could be the first profitable direction. The Dukkha Binya, for example. Now, another example could be we are doing any kind of meditation any kind of inside pathway, whatever it is, and a past conversation comes up in the middle of your meditation. So it could be anapanasati, it could be, you know, dukkapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadapadap
and quieted, brought the singleness and concentration. We enter and dwell in the higher concentrations. So what we, like when you think about switching attention, uh, switching meditations even, uh, it's good to look for another sutta where the Buddha says this. And one of the suttas that comes up is Nimitta Sutta. This is in Anguttara Nikaya, Chapter 3, Discourse Number 102. And in this sutta, the Buddha is specifically talking about when we're devoted to the higher mind, so wanting to get to higher concentration. And he talks about three different signs in this sutta. So I'll read it out because it's good to hear the Buddha's words. Bhikkhus, when a bhikkhu is devoted to the higher mind, from time to time he should give attention to three signs. From time to time he should give attention to the sign of concentration. So this is samadhi nimitta. From time to time he should give attention to the sign of exertion, pagaha nimitta. And the, and the third is, from time to time he should give attention to the sign of equanimity, upeka nimitta. If a bhikkhu devoted to the higher mind attends exclusively on the sign of concentration, it is possible that his mind will veer toward laziness. If he tends exclusively on the sign of exertion, it is possible that his mind will veer towards restlessness. If he tends exclusively on the sign of equanimity, it is possible that his mind will not be properly concentrated for the destruction of the taints. But when a bhikkhu devoted to the higher mind from time to time gives attention to the sign of concentration, from time to time gives attention to the sign of exertion, and from time to time gives attention to the sign of equanimity, his mind becomes malleable, wieldy, and luminous, pliant, and properly concentrated for the destruction of the taints. So we see here some confirmation supporting what the first sign is, is really saying to us. And the thing that the Buddha says is from time to time. So we need to look for signs. It's very important. We have a very active uh, active thing when we come to meditation. It's not passive. It's active. It's alert. It's looking for signs. It's directing so that we can enter higher concentration. So when you look at what leads to laziness, the sign of concentration, that sometimes with lazy, it can be termed like lazy meditation because there's too much indolence, maybe even sometimes sleepiness. We think we're concentrated, but we dwell too long in sloth and torpor. And then when it comes to uh, too much energy, too much uh, of that kind of uh, exertion, then it can lead to restlessness. That means the, the meditation is too busy, too easily distracted, and this is where the mind can tend to overheat and it needs to be calmed down. And so that's where you need to swap your meditation. And then with the third one, with the mind not properly concentrated for the destruction of taints, here we have more dull meditation. The mind is covered in dullness. It's not what the Buddha calls bright and luminous, the, the type of equanimity that is bright and luminous. So this is clearly when you look at this, that it leads to not properly concentrated, this is nicha samadhi. It doesn't lead to any uprooting of defilement. So it's very interesting to look at how the Buddha phrases this thing. And in this particular sutta, he talks about a goldsmith again, that when they prepare the furnace and heat up the crucible, uh, using it for the gold, and they put, it, they put the gold uh, into the crucible, from time to time, the example that the Buddha uses is you would blow on it and then from time to time you would sprinkle water on it and then from time to time you would just look on. 
And so the Buddha uses that example by saying, if you exclusively blow on the gold, then it would just burn up. If you exclusively sprinkle water on the gold, then the gold would just cool down. And then if you just look on, then the gold won't reach the right consistency. So the same thing with our mind, that what we want to do is to be able to switch when it's necessary. And so this is where you really see that it's not a passive thing when, when it comes to meditation and, and to the problems that come up in meditation. You need to fine tune, you need to read the signs correctly. And so when we do that, then the mind becomes more malleable, wieldy, luminous, and then we have no trouble with uh, coming to, to higher concentration, no difficulty in that. It's like switching a button. So that's the first sign. Think what we'll do is we'll keep moving along. So we come to the second sign. So with the second sign, the Buddha says, if while he is giving attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, there still arise in him evil and wholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion, then he should examine the danger in those thoughts thus. These thoughts are unwholesome, they are reprehensible, they result in suffering. When he examines the danger in those thoughts, then any evil unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate and with delusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steady, internally quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated, just as a man or woman, young, youthful, and fond of ornaments, would be troubled, humiliated, and disgusted if a carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck. So too. And then the Buddha goes on to say uh, the same thing about where the mind becomes internally quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. So this is the case where if the first medicine does not work, and or it only works for a limited time, and then those unwholesome thoughts come back again. The Buddha recommends that we now try to examine the danger or the drawbacks of those thoughts. So we need to think these thoughts are unwholesome, these thoughts are reprehensible, they result in suffering. And the simile, of course, is this dead carcass hung around our necks. So clearly when we have these persistent thoughts that come to our meditation, we need to view them as troubling, shameful, and disgusting. We know these in Pali as atiyati, harayati, jiguchati, you know, because we, we, we need to look at these thoughts as troubling. That's the atiyati, shameful, harayati. We don't want to give them time, disgusting. They're, they're, they're probably based out of the wrong view. That's why they're troubling us. They're not helpful to the meditation. So in that way, when we see them as troubling, shameful, and, and disgusting, we don't want to invite them back. We don't want to enjoy them. We don't want to indulge them. So unfortunately, this is what we often do. Uh, we get caught in some, in a way, delicious uh, thought that comes to the mind, and unfortunately, we indulge in it, and we think it's okay. Not consciously. Sometimes it's very unconscious. The mind gets soaked into something, and, and so the pollution starts to fester in the mind. So we don't see it at that point as the dead carcass hung around our necks. No, we don't. So this method, the second method that the Buddha is giving us as medicine is really about striving by protection. What we want to do is to protect our minds and whatever wholesome result that we have from our previous meditations, 
we want to protect that. We don't want to get obstructed by these types of thoughts on wholesome state. Buddha uses very similar imagery when it comes to seeing the danger in sensual pleasures. So if you remember that he gives similes like chain of bones, piece of meat, burning grass torch, charcoal pit, butcher's knife and block. And the one that he uses for sensual pleasures is the snake's head. So if we use this imagery that the Buddha gives, which is quite disgusting, seeing this dead carcass hung around our necks, then we need to see the danger in the thoughts, that it's possible to see a change in the course of our thoughts if we see the danger. So we want to direct it back to the wholesome, back to the right view. So the Buddha says if we do this, of course, we can steady the mind. Now, when it comes to applying this medicine, there are several ways of doing it. We can examine the impurity in the thoughts that they result in mental misconduct. So that will accrue unwholesome karma. So that, that's one way. The second way may be if we think if we continue with the same line of unwholesome thinking, it may lead to further unwholesome behavior. So it may be outside of the meditation, it leads to unwholesome speech, unwholesome action. And of course, there's a danger in allowing such thoughts to fester and for more unwholesome uh, conduct to, to grow. The third could be just simply saying this is dangerous to blocking spiritual progress that it's not possible if we keep stagnating and allowing this, then we stagnate or at worst we, we decline. So it's harmful. Another way is also to look at the wise would reprove because the wise see the danger in such thoughts and the wise would not encourage us to think in this way. So we must abandon it. And then another one is if we think whatever's in our mind, it could be uh, very negative thinking about people. Just imagine if you were to speak those words out in front of people, then of course it's not good for us, it's harmful to us and shameful and disgusting as well. So again, that's another way of seeing the danger in them. And then in the bigger picture of it, if we keep perpetuating unwholesome thoughts that block our meditation, we essentially remain, remain bound to samsara. And if you look at the karmic results that the Buddha talks about, in Chulakamma and Vibhanga Sutta and other suttas that talk about Hamma, then you see that you are destined for lower birth and it's not a good thing. And if you're reborn as a human, you, you have to reap the unwholesome Kamma of that. So again, that's another way of looking at it. It said that the Buddha used this method uh, just before his enlightenment. So when he was overcome with thoughts of desire and aversion and, and all the things that he was being tempted and challenged with, he said to himself, these thoughts are harming me. And so there are many situations in, in daily life where this medicine can be applied. Uh, we see it in the danger in central pleasures, danger in any misconduct, danger in breeding defilements. All these things are constantly in operation, but we don't see the danger in them. So it's helpful to apply this teaching. So it would prevent us from wrongdoing. It would also prevent us for, from falling for the worldly baits, the things in the world that are pulling us towards them. And so we'd be more cautious and we would also be more cautious about indulging in defilements. And what's really key is also when we see it in this way, we develop a healthy sense of moral shame. We don't want to be doing these things. And uh, also a healthy sense of fear of wrongdoing. We see the, the downside. We see the repercussions. That becomes our frame of reference. And that's why this becomes 
striving by protection. It's protecting us from harm. So in our meditation, there can be still these pernicious thoughts that keep coming up. And it could be things that happen during the day that come up in the meditation. So if it's a person, it's important to see that there's a danger in allowing these kinds of harmful thoughts you know, to pervade the mind. We don't want whatever meditation we're doing, we could be doing metta bhavana. But if we keep thinking about a particular person in a harmful way, that we're angry with them and uh, they did me wrong or, or something like that, it becomes that person's name meditation. So I'm going to use the example of politics because politics is something that always troubles our minds. So in our meditation, we could be doing anapana or we could be doing metta or something. And, and so we, we, we think we're doing that meditation and then that person comes to mind. So say, for example, it's a politician, it's Rajapaksa or it's uh, uh, Singha, you know, whoever it is, your meditation turns from metta meditation to Rajapaksa meditation or Rikramasinga meditation or Premadasa meditation. That's the thing, the, the Sri Lankan uh, idea. But again, if you're in a different country, it could be Macron meditation, it could be Biden meditation. And many of us for many years were doing Trump meditation instead of the meditation we were supposed to be doing. So you get the idea. It's important that angry, divisive states of mind um, that we know in those situations, the result is rebirth in lower realms. And we know that unwholesome karma that comes of that is you're, if you're reborn in the human realm, you, you have a very bad um, ripening. So when it comes to meditation, it's important to see the danger, acknowledge it at least, acknowledge that it is there, the, the, the harm that it is causing, the unwholesome thoughts, and then to see the danger of those. And danger in this lifetime, danger in, in the beyond. So again, if we use the same example as before about the envy that was arising about a previous classmate, if we tried knocking it out with the wholesome thought, so thinking, you know, those wholesome thoughts about the spiritual path as opposed to just being simply successful in one lifetime, um, if that didn't work and that thought keeps coming back, this flutter of envy that is there, then you didn't completely knock it out. So you would reflect on the danger in continuing the thoughts of envy. So in this particular case, you would say, if we persist with envy and we keep allowing that thought to be there and for it to grow, then you think, as a result of this, if I am reborn, I'll be reborn in a state of deprivation, lower realms. But if I'm reborn as a human, what the Buddha says in the Trulakama Vivanga Sutra is, wherever you're reborn, you'll be reborn without any influence. So you can see that link there. So that's harmful. All of that is harmful. So that's how would you, you would use this second sign in medicine. Now, when we come to the third sign, this one is where we're forgetting and not giving attention. So the Buddha says, if while he is examining the danger in those thoughts, there still arise in him evil, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion. Then he should try to forget those thoughts and should not give attention to them. When he tries to forget those thoughts and does not give attention to them, then any unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, 
his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated, just as a man with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut his eyes or look away. So too, then when a bhikkhu tries to forget those thoughts and does not give attention to them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. So now we are still meditating and despite seeing the danger in our wholesome thoughts, they are still troubling us. So the Buddha is now asking us to try and forget those thoughts and not give attention to them. So the Pali words that the Buddha uses here are, is asati, which can be translated as forget, trying to forget, or not to give energy to, mind energy to. And amanasikaro is the other word that the Buddha uses, which is translated as not giving attention, not reflecting, not contemplating. And so the simile that we look at here is someone with good eyesight. So when something comes towards you, you don't want to focus on it. You don't want to even look at it. So you close your eyes and turn away. You don't want to make contact, essentially. When we look at this medicine, the Buddha is really talking about striving by restraint, samvara, and more specifically, restraining the mind or mental faculty. So mano indriya samvara. Now, when we look at uh, the practice of mental restraint, we see that we want to change the course or path of our thoughts. So we restrain in order to do that, adjust so that we retain a mind of wholesome, not unwholesome. And again, lead with right view. If we do this correctly, of course, we get to the internal quietness, the steadiness of the mind. We enter the higher concentration. Now, in daily life, we know this can be very helpful. We talk about this all the time. Uh, this is about dwelling vigilantly and, and negligently, and we're going to look at, remind ourselves of this in a moment. But it's very helpful to know that we need to restrain our faculties, whether it is our eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. If you don't make contact, you don't speak about it, you don't remind yourself about it, you forget all about it. Now, we can do this even with very troublesome things like politics, war, all the unbeneficial areas that, that tend to disturb the mind. Usually, um, all these topics, all these different things, they agitate us, they create worry, they make us quite upset. We even get fearful if we go too much into it. So restraint is very good for the spiritual path. You know, we know Buddha always says this about form. Restraint is very important. The mind is generally less disturbed. You look back at your own practice. When you have restraint, you know that the mind is generally less disturbed or troubled. Otherwise, what happens is we struggle a lot. We get drawn towards areas that steer us in the wrong direction. We start to decline. And our mind sinks down. We feel very weighed down when we're carrying suitcases of problems on our shoulders that we don't need to. So in meditation, it works the same way. If we restrain the mind from giving attention to things that we've taken in through the other senses and they persist as unwholesome thoughts, it's like withdrawing the energy, withdrawing the attention, giving no fuel to them, shutting them off halting any pollution in the mind. So the Buddha has a wonderful teaching on this, the Katubiya Sutta, and that's recently been spoken about. It talks about pollution, stench, and flies. So it's along the same lines. You need to really rein in the mind. 
So sometimes in our meditation, we might have thoughts that also randomly arise, that they've been buried inside, they lie dormant. And no matter what we do, any of these signs, sometimes they just rear, rear themselves, they come up. And an example of that might be grief over the loss of a loved one, someone who's maybe passed away a long time ago, even a pet, so any loved one. And in daily life, it doesn't seem apparent that we're troubled by it. But sometimes with meditation, these, these things do come up. So in that situation, no matter what sign that the Buddha is giving, it may not be possible, like in this particular instance, to forget. You can't ignore it because it, it, it's piercing you. It's, it's, it's like you've been uh, shot with the dart. And, and so in this situation, what's really good is to acknowledge the presence of, of these kinds of dormant thoughts and to have method towards them and to the, the object that is arising in the mind. And then if it's a particular uh, person, to reflect on their good deeds and then to put it down because then at that point uh, you've considered also something wholesome in them. And then through that, by that means you're able to Put them down like no longer need to give attention to them and then after that it's possible to carry on with your meditation but there are also situations like that there are little subtleties that come up in our meditation as we start to keep refining refining purifying purifying and getting to concentration there's certain things that just come to trouble us because maybe the conditions are right for that so what's important with this, what we're saying about how this is very much about uh, restraint, striving by restraint with this kind of medicine from the Buddha. We know that Pamada Vihara Sutta, a sutta that we studied before, that we're still studying, it has this inside pathways for dwelling neg negligently, so Pamada Vihari, and dwelling vigilantly, Upamada Vihari. So on this slide, we have the Upamada Vihari, dwelling vigilantly. But what we do know is that if we take the mind faculty and we pollute the mind with ideas and thoughts because we are not restrained, then the Buddha says that there won't be any gladness, there won't be any rapture, the body won't become tranquil, we won't dwell happily, and instead we'll dwell with suffering or pain, and that therefore the mind doesn't become calm and collected and the truth doesn't become apparent. So this is the... Uh, Pamada Vihara, dwelling neg negligently. But on this slide here, if we are restrained and we don't pollute the mind, then what happens is we get those good results. There is gladness, there is rapture. The body does become tranquil. We can dwell happily. And we know this for ourselves from our own meditation. Our mind becomes calm and collected. We enter into the higher concentration and the truth does become apparent. We start to activate the higher training in wisdom. So this is what the Buddha encourages, dwelling vigilantly. And this is where the third sign in this Vitaka Sutta, Vitaka Santana Sutta really resonates. Restraining the mind by trying to forget and not giving attention to unwholesome thoughts. So this is the way that the mind doesn't get polluted and we more easily without trouble enter the jhanas. So the fourth sign is where we're looking at where we look at the stilling of the thought formations. So the Buddha says, if while he is trying to forget those thoughts and is not giving attention to them, there still arise in him evil and wholesome thoughts connected with desire, 
with hate and with delusion, then he should not, then he should give attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. When he gives attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, then any evil and wholesome thoughts connected with desire and hate and with delusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. Just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And he would walk slowly. Then he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And he would stand. Then he might consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? And he would sit. And then he might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And he would lie down. By doing so, he would substitute for each grosser posture one that was subtler. And then the Buddha goes on in the same way. So now we are still meditating and despite trying to forget and not giving attention to those unwholesome thoughts, they are still troubling us. So the Buddha now asks us to give attention to the stilling, to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts. So the words that the Buddha uses here in Pali are Vitaka Sankara, which can be translated as thought formation or thought construction or the conditions for those thoughts. And Santana is really stilling, stabilizing, resting, settling, maybe even pacifying, sometimes also relaxing. So you're looking to pacify the thoughts that are constructed. You're looking to still the formation of those thoughts. Now, the medicine that the Buddha is prescribing is to examine how those thoughts are formed, constructed, what is where they're coming from. That, that's how we need to settle them or pacify them or still them. The simile that the Buddha uses is this person that is going through the different postures from something that is very fast all the way to something that becomes much, much more, more subtle in posture. And along the way, the person is asking, why am I doing this? So you're investigating. What you get from the simile is there's an investigation process happening. Now, if you study this simile and you apply it to the challenges in our meditation, what you can see with this fourth sign is the Buddha is asking us to investigate what is causing the unwholesome thoughts to arise? How did we come to uh, these unwholesome thoughts? What is the nutriment? What is the food that is fueling the unwholesome thoughts? And also, how are these thoughts being constructed? And, of course, when you look at that, you start to see where is the mind establishing? So just like querying the, the changes in posture in the simile, our investigating investigation is really uh, thinking about where are these thoughts coming from? And as we investigate, it's getting more and more subtle in terms of the root cause of it. So what's evident is when you look at where the mind is establishing, you see that you need to focus on what we know about the four nutriments. That's one aspect that you, you can look at because you want to see what is the perversion that is driving this mental state? What am I, what wrong view am I, am I cultivating here? And so when you investigate in this way, what we'll see is you see the change in course. Again, you, know, you see the change in course of the thoughts and view, but it's coming from a deeper place now. You want to adjust the meditation back on track, and so you need the right view. In all of these, what you see is you really need the right view. What you're trying to 
to lead with this always right view to correct it. And then the effort is made to change the, the intention back to wholesome. And the mindfulness is the one that is making it happen, completing that process. And so that's how we enter into the back onto the higher concentration. An example is if we have sensual thoughts coming up in the mind, we know that the mind is usually establishing on form. Usually it's the coupling kara hara that when you have sensual thoughts, all these sensual desire thinking, you get bonded, you all, all these things start to trouble you. So if you follow the conditions that cause those kinds of thoughts, you come back to physical nutriment. And if you look at physical nutriment, then you know that what is perverting the mind is seeing attractive in the unattractive, the asuba suba vipalasa. And so you see from that the escalation of sensual desires driving those thoughts. So in the next slide, we'll look at briefly uh, four nutrients again, satrahara. Um, but before we do that, it's also good to know that if uncertain, if if certain unwholesome thoughts still keep coming up, it can also be due to unwholesome conduct, you know, things that we've done through our speech and action. So never discount that. And I think we haven't spoken about that yet. But let's use an example. So say you, you're meditating and you haven't quite settled an argument that you had before your meditation. Could have been the same day, could have been a few days ago. And during that argument, unfortunately, you unleash some harsh speech. You told someone off, you called them names, you swore at them. And the problem is if you haven't settled that for oneself, not let alone settled in the argument itself, but settled in your own mind, the wrongdoing, the misconduct, then what comes up in the meditation is, is blocks. And so when that happens, it's very good to admit that you did wrong. So in that case, it could be harsh speech. So it's very good to admit and regret that harsh speech. Otherwise, it keeps flaring up. It could flare up as unwholesome thoughts about the person, but it could also flare up as one's own conduct. And so sometimes what we do is we try and suppress it or ignore it, which is the step before. But when we come to even this step now, this fourth sign, it might still be there. Now, we could apply this the medicine of this fourth sign, but I think it's also good to look at this other bit first, which is to admit and regret. Otherwise, the mind is very restless and it, and it worries, unconsciously and consciously. So in this particular one, it's to look at it with real honesty and, and to say, I, I did something wrong in this situation. You know, there are unwholesome karmic results of that, this harsh speech, and, and I really seriously regret it. <clears throat> so you think about it from the perspective of conviction towards Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and with that conviction towards Buddha Dhamma Sangha, you regret three times in your mind. You make a very strong intention not to do that again. You see the error in your ways. So only then is it possible to abandon those kinds of, of thoughts because they actually come from unwholesome other behavior, so speech or, or physical action. And so when that happens, it's a lot easier even to tackle it through these other signs. So that's something to also bear in mind. Otherwise, they linger and, and it becomes difficult to work through. So we'll briefly look at the four nutriments again. So these un, unprofitable directions, really. And we, we won't go too much into it because we've studied this before. But it's useful to know that when we come to this fourth sign and we haven't been able to 
forget and not give attention to, to those unwholesome thoughts, and we're now looking at the formation of the thoughts, really this gives us the answers to many things because when you go from the gross, which is physical nutriment, you get more subtle as you go towards the right-hand side. As we know when we meditate on the, the, the five aggregates, we know that it's always easy to meditate on thought and it's easy to, to a certain extent to meditate on feelings. But when we get to perception and volitional formations, it gets more and more subtle. It's more difficult. But if you're familiar with the four nutriments, it's easier to see things because you know about post-perceptions, you know about what's driving in terms of the perversions. This is what's contributing to the wrong view. And you know as you go down each line what where you go wrong because where you end up, of course, is you go the wrong way through desire, you go the wrong way through hate, you go the wrong way through fear, and you go the wrong way through delusion. Now, when you apply this medicine from the Buddha with the fourth sign, you could quite easily switch your meditation to the meditation on the appropriate uh, nutriment or to meditate on the whole set of the four nutriments. It's quite easy to see yourself doing that because it may be the most helpful to, to enter higher concentration and to remove those blocks. So if we look at the example of Say, for example, the one that we've been carrying forward, the envy. Really, when you look at where those envy thoughts lead to, it actually goes the wrong way with hate, only because within that envy, there is an expectation that you're clean. If you had followed the worldly path where your classmate that you've heard about is successful, that person you think is experiencing a lot of happiness. You know, and if you were to do the same thing, you're still deluded in thinking, if I cling to whatever that person has done, and if I did the same thing, I can exist with that kind of happiness. And what the post-perception is, is that I should have that. The envy, what that is wrapping up is, that should be mine. That success and glory should be mine. If I was back in the world, that's what I should have done. Like, could do or something of that nature and so the two perversions which are uh, uh, harming you at that point is the perversion that you can you think that there is lasting happiness at that moment you don't fully believe it if you're a spiritual practitioner but when that uh, that flutters in your mind there is that sickness that comes to the mind that says oh but that person must be really happy because they're so successful and you also think within that envy that should be mine you know, you could, that's where the envy comes in. So when you do that, you're pushing it towards this side, more subtle. You think that happiness can last. As we know, the Buddha says, it doesn't last. It's fleeting. We also know that in the whole mass of suffering, if you look at the bigger picture, success is only relative to one existence or even for a period of time in one existence. It doesn't last. And what you take as me and mine, it's, it's also misapprehended. If you keep going along with me and mine, you end up in Daya Agati. You know, there, there's a lot there. You, you can see you can spend a lot of time looking at certain unwholesome thoughts that come into the mind and really delve into it, where you go wrong. So this fourth sign, when you look at using something like four nutrients, very helpful in unlocking certain things and you may switch your meditation or you may go back to your 
original meditation, but you're correcting your view. Like we said, all this way through, we're correcting our view. So if you work through any of these inside pathways, you can pacify the unwholesome thoughts because you're disentangling yourself with wisdom. Uh, you see what you're holding on to. You see what you're still misapprehending, where you're going the wrong way. And so you correct wrong view with right view and then obstructions can be lifted. That's where it's most interesting. Now, the other uh, part of it is dependent origination, that we can also link back to dependent origination when we look at these things, that if you already understand aspects of dependent origination, so particularly Samapada, then it's also helpful to look at it because we've meditated on the four nutriments. We know that craving arises when we fall for the perversion. So it's at this particular point here, the perversion that there is attractive and unattractive, pleasure in the painful, me and mine in not me and mine and permanent in impermanent. This is where the craving arises because you think, oh, I take delight in that, you know, the form, the feeling, the perception and the volitional formation. So when you take delight, you welcome and express it, you remain holding. So when you go back, if we look at this dependent origination, craving, kanha is here. And what we we look at is if we if we don't take delight, we don't welcome, don't remain holding, it is possible to break this link. So even in the meditation, it can be useful to look at it that way. Even uh, meditating on Samadhi Bhavana Sutta uh, can be quite helpful here. So in both these cases, and you can look at other things as well, like Lorba Dosa Moha, the, the pathway for greed, hatred and delusion, that meditation that ends up in the three kinds of Dukkha, that all is also helpful here. But the main thing about it is that with Buddha's teaching and, and his instructions, they're very, very precise. We're not meant to flounder in our meditation. We're not meant to make up our own pathways about how thoughts arise. He had done all the hard work. You know, through his full liberation, the perfect enlightenment, with that higher wisdom and all the buddhanyanas, he had done all that work. He has mapped that all for us. And so he's explicitly telling us what are the conditions for thoughts, you know, or the thought formation. He's telling us study them, apply them, test them, and see if you get that result. And so in this fourth sign, this is where we, we look to. We look to the Buddha's maps for this. And there's so much gratitude to the Buddha for these things because we don't have to spend so much trying, time trying to figure out. We don't have to flounder in our meditation. So the fifth sign is when we use effort and beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. So the Buddha says, if while he's giving attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, there still arise in him evil and wholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion, then... With his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he should beat down and constrain and crush mind with mind. When with his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he beats down, constrains and crushes mind with mind, then any evil unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate and with delusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning with the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. 
just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down and constrain him and crush him. And so too, and it goes on. So again, we are still meditating and despite trying to still the thought formations or pacify them, those thoughts are still troubling us. So the Buddha now asks us to think on this simile, uh, to, to think on this simile of the strong man grabbing the weaker man by the head and shoulders and, and giving a severe beating, holding him down and, and crushing him. Very strong imagery. Uh, and in our case, when we meditate with our teeth clenched, tongue pressed against the roof of our mouth, beating down, constrain and crush mind with mind. So this is the final medicine. When all other medicines have failed and or they have they've only worked for a period of time, then this is where we get to. So the imagery is very fierce and it's meant to be. All other approaches up to this point uh, haven't, haven't uh, applied this much force. And so given this is the last one, it's kind of understandable that it, it has this force. The impression we get, and I think the impression that we're meant to get, is that in our meditation, in our pursuit of the higher concentrations of mind, we really need to apply ourselves to stay on the course of the meditation, stay on course to, to break through impediments, obstructions and everything. We don't go, okay, I, I give up now. I'm going to get off my cushion. I'm going to go make a cup of tea. That is not what the Buddha means by this. The Buddha is saying you need to stay the course, even by switching meditations, trying all these different things that the Buddha is giving us as ways to overcome. This final one is very much no more. So we're not meant, if you think about meditation in general, development of mind in general, we're not meant to do sleepy meditation. We're not meant to do dull meditation. We're not meant to sink down. We're not meant to do uh, hateful meditation. You know, any of those unwholesome mind states, we're meant to not slack off, not give up the battle, not meant to give in to Mara's bait. So instead, what we do is we use all our spiritual faculties, powers, enlightenment factors, idipadas, you name it, uh, to beat down these unwholesome states and to crush them, whatever is available at the time. And so given that this is a struggle to get to the higher concentrations, not all of those will be there for us to use. So we might still have quite blunt spiritual faculties and powers and they're not fully activated enlightenment factors. So this is very much striving by abandonment of unwholesome thoughts, the arisen unwholesome thoughts. So if we know from Padana Sutta, we know that the four right striving, we generate desire for the abandoning of arisen bad unwholesome states, we make the effort, we arouse energy and apply the mind and strive. So this is very much that. But if we take it further, we go to, say, the Sangvara Sutta. Uh, this one is Angutnikai, Chapter 4, Discourse Number 14. The Buddha's, again, we said this at the start, he's very clear about the wording. One does not tolerate an arisen sensual thought. He abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, obliterates it. And the same with arisen thoughts of ill will and arisen thoughts of harming or cruelty. So whenever they arise, abandon, dispel, terminate, obliterate. So the spiritual faculty of energy, so the virya indriya, it's, it's the force that we're applying here. 
together with the other spiritual faculties, including wisdom. So this is not willpower. This is spiritual faculty. And all the faculties get activated when one comes to the fore. So we, when we do these uh, medicines of the Buddha, we're also sharpening our faculties because we're becoming more skilled in the development of the mind. So if we follow these instructions from the Buddha, of course, we, we expect to change the course of our meditation, to get it back on track to the wholesome path and, and leading with uh, the kusala. So in our daily life, there are often times that we can use this approach. You know, when something is unwholesome and you see it becoming a really bad habit, that it's harming us, you really get, need to get to the point where you crush it. So, for example, uh, if, if you have a very bad habit like smoking, this is a general one from, from daily life. I'm not saying anybody here smokes, but uh, we know that it's harmful, harmful because of uh, sickness that it can bring and, and it's like inhaling poison. So when you try to give up smoking, what you need to do is to crush it, obliterate it. You need to not have a packet of cigarettes. You not, need to not be around people who smoke. You need to really say no. And so there comes a point for a smoker where you need to really, really obliterate it in that way and, and just have a very strong intention and use a lot of effort not to go near anything that is smoking related. So the same thing happens in our meditation. We come to the point where... We've tried different things. We've come to this fifth one and we have this very strong intention that out of conviction to this path, out of conviction to knowing that this higher training is what we want, we don't back down. You know, that it is imperative to continue with this meditation. And this is not about physical ailments or, or other things that may arise in the meditation. If, if someone isn't feeling well, then of course you stop. But this is when everything is fine, but it's a mental thing and you need to beat down unwholesome thoughts in this respect because it's no more softly, softly. So if you train in this way, a good way of looking at this final one is at the point of death. This is what we're training towards. When things are immensely challenging at that crucial point, when literally you're down to the wire, we want to be able to make the right choices. We want to activate all these path factors from Indriya, Bala, Bojanga, Ilipada, all of it. We want to activate all the fruits of our spiritual practice. So at the point of death, will we say softly, softly? Will we say, okay, uh, it's okay? No. At the point of death, we would say we must persist. We must lean towards Nibbana. We must follow the Buddha's instruction. And so see this Vitaka Santana Sutta where we're training for the higher concentration. And this goes hand in hand with higher training in, in, in the training in higher virtue and the, high, and the training in higher wisdom. They go hand in hand because we're working towards this point. No matter what age we are, we are all working towards this point because we see the value, the benefit in the Buddha's teaching. We have no doubt. So when you train in this way, this is what the last one is really alluding to, that it comes to the crunch time, the final exam, the penultimate exam. You don't want to fail. 
Another way of looking at this is through the seeker quality that we looked at before, Ara the video. So we looked at this in Seeker Palipada Sutta and also Nagarupama Sutta. The good quality of being energetic, arousing energy, Ara the video. This is part of the trainee's mode of progress. So we know that the Arahants have perfected this as one of the seven good qualities and the 15 in total of accomplishments. And the simile that the Buddha uses for this in the Nagarupama Sutta is large army. So just as a royal frontier fortress has a large army stationed within, elephant soldiers, cavalry, charioteers, bowmen, uh, standard bearers, bulletin officers, soldiers, all of that, in the same way a noble disciple dwells energetic in abandoning unskillful qualities and taking on skillful qualities, is strong, firm in one's effort, not putting down one's duties with regard to skillful qualities. With persistence as one's army, the disciple of the noble ones abandons what is unskillful, develops what is skillful, abandons what is blameworthy, develops what is blameless, and looks after oneself with purity. They possess this fifth good quality. So you get the imagery again from this particular sutta. We also know that the weapons when it comes to Nagarokama Sutta is Bahusutta, all these teachings from the Buddha, what we have learned, what we have memorized, what we have practiced, what have we directly known for ourselves through the practice. So the army and the weapons that we are using are these things. So what do we know about an army? Again, they train, they build strength, they take orders, instruction. They don't back down in the battle. And when it comes to the battle, the final battle, they use all their strength and persist until they win the battle. So this is what we must do with the fifth sign. So the ending of the sutta, the Buddha says that bhikkhus, when a bhikkhu is giving attention to some sign and owing to that sign, there arise in him evil unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate and with delusion. Then when he gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, any such evil and wholesome uh, that are abandoning him and subside. And with the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. When he examines the danger in those thoughts, and again, the same repetitive thing, when he tries to forget those thoughts and does not give attention to them, when he gives attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, when with his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he beats down, constrains and crushes mind with mind. Any such evil, unwholesome thoughts are abandoned in him, and his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. This bhikkhu is then called a master of the course and ways of thought. He will think whatever thought he wishes to think, and he will not think any thought that he does not wish to think. He has severed craving, flung off the fetters, and with the complete penetration of conceit, has made an end of suffering. This is what the Blessed One said. Because we're satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So if we follow the Buddha's instructions and we work through the different signs and apply the various medicine, then we enter the higher concentration. And when we have realized the higher concentration, we enter and dwell in the jhanas and 
the mind becomes very stable, purified, quiet, unified, still. And we can dwell happily in the right view. So the hindrances have been subdued, the defilements are no longer there. But I also think at that point, wisdom does kick in because you also see that these things are constructed as well. So it's also important to know that even with the stilling of the mind, you, you always investigate. The last part about being called the master of course, of the course and ways of thought, uh, being able to think what one wishes to think and not to think about what one doesn't wish to think. This particular part sounds like someone who has fulfilled the right striving when it comes to the non-arising and abandoning of unwholesome states and also the development and sustenance of wholesome states of mind. So someone who has perfected it. So this doesn't relate to, to us. You know, we are training. And when the Buddha talks about having severed craving, flung off the fetters, and with the complete penetration of conceit, that person has made an end of suffering. So it implies someone who's mastered the course and ways of thought and perfected the path. So these final references don't apply to us, but one who is perfected. And so we are still training to develop our mind to direct the course of our thoughts away from unwholesome towards wholesome in order to undertake the higher training. So we've now gone through all five in more detail with some examples as we've gone along. It's important to apply this in our meditation because this is very handy. Sometimes we don't directly look at problem solving in our meditation and these things come to block us, sabotage us, and hinder our development and progress on the path. So one thing is if you want to see a sequential application of this, we could take something uh, to look at all five at, at one go. And we'll take something from daily life rather than in meditation because it can get quite uh, detailed. If we take, for example, worldly matters, because that's always at the forefront of our minds. So it could be the war in Ukraine, could be economic hardship in Sri Lanka, could be pandemic, all these sorts of things. Or it could be about politicians, since politicians seem to be the, the topic of, of the day in, in most, most countries with elections and all kinds of things. So the mind gets very, very turbulent. So maybe conversation is around these topics a lot. So if we use the five signs that the Buddha gives, gives us, so say we have some kind of aversion towards a politician and we need to knock out that averse kind of thought with something wholesome. So again, we've, we've briefly spoken about this in the case of a politician. It's good to recall some good deed. So when the mind complains, it complains, complains about everything that they did wrong, you know, right now, everything. And sometimes we lie as well. We make it more than what it is. And we forget what they, they did that was good. We belittle, derogate. There are times where politicians have done some good things for a country. They've, they've helped to do certain programs that were good for the poor or they donated some of their own funds. You know, Maybe on the other hand, they did really bad things, but there's always something good. Or if you can't see that in politics and you see that in their personal life, that they're good to their children or they look after their parents. So that's the first way you knock out the unwholesome thoughts with something that is wholesome. Now, if the thoughts persist about that politician, then 
you need to see the danger in those thoughts. So you would think, if I die at this moment with all this ill will and anger and hostility towards this politician, then that's quite dire for me. I would go to the lower realm unless I had entered the stream. And if I'm reborn as a human, the karmic result is dire. You know, I would have to reap some unwholesome karma. Now, if that doesn't work and the thoughts persist, we come down to the third uh, sign, then what you need to do is not give attention to the news media, not to turn on the television, not to talk about this politician, to forget about them entirely if possible, and to restrain from seeking out any news or information from, about them. So that's how you would, you would do that. You would retract all your energy away from them, not give any sort of contact. Now, if the thoughts still persist after that, you go to the fourth sign. So you examine where the mind is establishing. And because the thoughts are averse, you know that you're going the wrong way due to hate. So you see that the mind is establishing on feeling vedana. And so you're taking pleasure in what is painful. So contact is as nutriment. Pasahara is the one that is driving those averse thoughts. So no matter what you do, the dart of hate is making you burn with hate towards the politician. Instead, you need to turn that around. So because no matter what outcome for the politician, the one that is uh, reaping the downfall is one's own mind. And so you need to look at how you're going the wrong way with, with hate. So it may be that you, you seek sukha in a perverse way through this politician. You need to abandon that, give up contact with that. Another thing that could be happening is you need to see how when we have averse thoughts to people, we think this person is harming me, this person is harming my loved one. They've done it in the past, they're doing it now, they do it in the future. That kind of thing you also need to investigate because it's helpful to see the trap in those kinds of thoughts. It's, it's things that could lead to more dukkha, more, more fear even. You go down by agati because it becomes more of me and mine. So that's another way of looking at the stealing of thought formations. You look at where is it coming from? Where is the mind resting? What is the wrong view that is pervading that? And then finally, when you come to the last one, well, you use all the energy to crush that down. And, and really, what is the point of thinking about this particular person? This person is the owner of their own karma. Likewise, we are the owners of our karma. So we need to be very careful what we harness in our mind. Because we go down, irrespective of the politician, we go down if we harness those kinds of thoughts. And so we use all our energy to, to do that, all our vidya, uh, uh, indriya, and other parts, our other video to do that. So that's an example. I mean, there are many, many examples you can use to, to see how this works. You can use it in daily life, as we said, but more importantly, you can use it in the meditation because that's where it's meant for. So a nice verse to end with, the formal talk part of the, the session, is this Dhammapada verse, which is number 327, and it's about this elephant called Pabeyaka. And it's quite fitting to, to talk about this story. So at the time, the Buddha was residing at Jetavana Monastery, and it was in reference to Paveka, this elephant, that the Buddha uttered this verse. So Paveka was, when he was a young elephant, he was very strong, 
And over time, as he became old and his faculties and everything, he had less strength and became more decrepit. One day, as an old elephant, he went to bathe in the pond and he got stuck. Uh, he got stuck because of the mire, because of the muddy ground, and he couldn't back out, get, get back out. He couldn't come back onto shore. So when King Pasanadi of Kosala was told about this elephant, he sent an elephant trainer to help the old elephant get out of the, the mire, the muddy ground. And the elephant trainer went to where the elephant was, which was in this pond, and he made musicians start to play the the battle tunes or the battle type of uh, tunes. And hearing all the military uh, celebratory rousing kind of sounds, the elephant felt as if it was in the battlefield. And so its spirits rose despite the old age, despite all the, the different things that were not so strong. So he pulled himself with all his might out of the mire and when the bhikkhus um, told the Buddha about this, the Buddha said, bhikkhus, just as that elephant pulled itself out of the maya, so must you also pull yourselves out of the maya of moral defilements. And so then he, he spoke the verse, take delight in vigilance, protect your mind, pull yourself from the bad path like an elephant sunk in mud. And so after that discourse, the bhikkhus attained arahanship. So it's a lovely one to end our, our formal part of the session on because this is what we must do. We must take delight in vigilance and really think of it as in no matter how difficult it is, we, we need to really pull ourselves out and, and make extra effort towards that. So I'll finish here. Uh, what we can do is probably, what I'd like to do is to take 10, 15 minutes, maybe about 10 minutes, maybe 10, 15 minutes. We'll take 15 minutes since we, we have some time. Um, let's take 15 minutes to contemplate. I'll go back to this slide. And we can look at these five signs to give attention to and just do a meditation. Whatever meditation you wish to do, or even just to contemplate these signs is fine. But if you wish to try one of your meditations and if you encounter difficulties to try and apply some of this medicine, that might be useful. Because I think if we do a little meditation, what will be helpful is if there are any questions that come up from this, they can be asked during our questions and answers. So let's break here and do a little meditation on these signs. Therawan Saranai, I'll bring us back at the appropriate time. Therawan Saranai.
We can come out of our meditation or contemplation now. So if you have any questions, we can look at any questions. Uh, you can either type them in or I believe you're able to unmute yourself. So you can also unmute yourself and ask a question. Everyone's out of night. 